0: Today at LeadSex, we are talking about gene editing and more specifically about CRISPR, a new technique that makes changing DNA easier and more affordable. There is still much ahead to develop in terms of science, but even more tricky than that seems to be the morals and ethics regarding the issue. While it can make wonders for curing diseases like cancer, making more resistant crops and so many other positive applications, it can also be used to create super soldiers, deadly diseases and designer babies. It looks like science fiction, but it's real. We are joined today by Megan Ochstrauser, a biologist from Brown University and a PhD in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology from the University of California. She also did an undergraduate research for four years with Yale School of Medicine and Brown University. Now she's the Education Program Manager at the Innovative Genomics Institute. I'm David Bernardo Santo, and I'll be joined today by our student interviewer, Sigurd Kolst. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Megan. Welcome, Sigurd, our student interviewer today. Thank you. Megan, I'll try to keep up with all the science and everything, but let's start from the beginning. What's the simplest way to explain CRISPR?
1: I say that CRISPR is a tool for rewriting DNA. So that's my simple explanation. It's a way that we can change the genetic code in cells and organisms.
0: And how can you... How can, because I've seen like several examples that you see like kind of these scissors that go and they they go into the DNA, they replace a part mm-hmm. of it, we'll go, we'll go into it a little bit to understand more of how it works. But it's funny that I think it's one of the scientific developments that probably is going to have one of the deepest impacts in society, but talking with most people, they never heard about it. What can it be used for? What are like the key applications for it?
1: CRISPR can be used for all sorts of things. And if you want to get into those scissors metaphors and everything, we definitely can. I can tell you Mm -hmm. more about how it works at the molecular level. But it it can be used for a variety of purposes. So the the first place it started being used is just for basic research. So it's a new way of changing DNA And it's much more user-friendly than a lot of the previous gene editing tools that we had. So I would say I was in the Jennifer Doudna's lab when this all sort of started coming about in 2012, 2013 in graduate school. And by the time I was finished with graduate school a few years later, basically all of my friends across campus were already using CRISPR as a gene editing tool in their own research. So that's like a really, really quick journey from someone fundamentally discovering and developing a tool to it being implemented. Usually that takes a lot longer uh, to to be widespread. So at first, I would say it would be used in just a a research capacity. Like it's really good at breaking genes and breaking a gene can tell us about how the gene usually works. It can tell us what the gene might normally do. But then I think people are kind of most excited in, in the lay public about using CRISPR for things like treating genetic diseases uh, or engineering nutritious climate resistant crops. There's, there's a lot of different things we can do. So because DNA is a something that all living things have, we can now change all living things. So I think in some ways we're limited just by our knowledge of DNA and our knowledge of what kinds of changes we can make to DNA to have desired effects. Um, so it's it's an interesting tool because it helps you learn about the world and learn about how genomes and code functions and you know how DNA makes is the blueprint for for life. Um but then you can build on that knowledge with the same tool and start altering life in different ways.
0: Okay. And Sigurd, you were telling me about the great framework that you saw Megan speaking about in a conference.
2: Yeah. Megan, you, you previously participated in this uh, STEM conference where you try to outline how you see the ethical parts of, of CRISPR. Because as you mentioned, like, it sounds amazing when you can edit all living things. That That's a pretty wild ability to have all of a sudden and really quickly. And I like that you had this separation of of ethical questions into to the technical risks, like what you would see in research and then the philosophical questions and and the societal impact. I wonder if you could maybe elaborate a bit on that.
1: Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways you can think about the ethical challenges associated with any technology. In this case, yeah, that I can't even remember what talk that was, but I'm sure I was talking <laughs> about uh, the difference the differences between risk, which is sort of you know, or technical risk, which is like how how likely is this to work the way we want it to? Are there chances that This CRISPR enzyme could cut, so we haven't gone into the mechanism yet. But yeah, maybe we could go.
0: I think I think maybe we could go. uh, Actually, since we're talking about the technical issues, maybe we can go on how it works. Sure. I have I have a couple of questions there that I never understood, and I'm very excited about having the (laughs) chance to ask.
1: Great. Yeah. I mean, so just very basically how CRISPR gene editing works is that we use these CRISPR enzymes, the most famous one is called Cas9, which means CRISPR associated protein nine. And we're able to reprogram this single protein to cut at any place in the genome or in all the DNA in the cell that we want. And we do this by changing something that it carries around called a guide RNA. So this is a little sequence of RNA, which people are starting to know what that is now that there are RNA vaccines. But RNA is basically like a slightly chemically different version of DNA that tends to be single-stranded or kind of twisted up into different shapes. And so the guide RNA has this twisted up part that's sort of like a handle that never changes. And that's what the Cas9 or the CRISPR enzyme uh, holds on to. And then there's one little part of it that's 20 genetic letters long, like GTCTC, those sorts of genetic letters. And we can change those 20 letters. So the scientist switches out those different letters and it tells this protein to go find that matching place in the DNA. So it's really, really easy to reprogram. And that's why I was saying it's kind of user-friendly compared to some of the other techniques that used to be more popular. And so we're able to tell this enzyme to go cut at our target place in DNA, and making that break in the DNA sort of triggers the cell to freak out because cuts in DNA can kill the cell. And so it sends in these repair proteins. So all of our cells have repair systems in them to make sure that DNA stays intact, since UV light and all sorts of different things are constantly damaging and breaking our DNA. Cells need ways to fix that. So the cell, after it gets this cut from Cas9, it sends in these repair teams to go and fix this break. And in doing so, they always end up or not always, I shouldn't say that they often end up changing the sequence of the DNA. So most of the time the repair is actually perfect. It, it's thought, but because Cas9 can keep cutting there every time it gets repaired, eventually you're going to have some kind of change to that sequence where, that makes it so Cas9 can't cut anymore. Yeah. And so, yep. Go ahead. So
0: one question I have is, okay, I understand how you program or kind of understand how you program it to go and to make that cut, make that change in the DNA. But we are talking about you can actually do that on an adult, right? For instance, if we're talking about people. How then... Your how many cells do you let me? It's not very scientific the way I'm speaking, but
1: how I'm many I know what you're getting at?
0: How many cells do you go and change and doubt and every cell has as your full DNA, right? So and how do you make that that is going to be the DNA that is going to reproduce to all your cells? Because I would assume it's a, it's a minority. How do you make that DNA, let's call it dominant in all the in all the body?
1: Right. So you're starting to get it when we use CRISPR for a particular application in a person, like say we're trying to treat cystic fibrosis. That's a, just an example genetic disease. That's, that's sort of one of the more common rare diseases. So in that case, it's going to be different in every case, the answer to your question. So you, you have to think about how many of the cells that currently have a mutation in someone actually need to change in order for them to have some kind of benefit. So in cystic fibrosis, that's a disease that primarily affects the lungs and prevents proper function of the lungs. I won't get into how it works. And so in that case, do you need to edit that person's brain? Do you need to edit their muscles? Do any of those other cells need to change? Probably not, um, unless there are, you know, there are other organs that are affected, but primarily you're going to go after lungs. And so in that case, then the question becomes, okay, if we can edit cells in the lungs, how many of those cells do we actually have to change? Can you edit a few and then those, you know, reproduce and proliferate and take over and you have mostly edited cells? That would be the case for uh, something where, that affects stem cells. In a lot of cases, you want to edit the cells that are actually there at the moment. And so you want to get good delivery of the CRISPR machinery to all of those different cells. And that's really a problem right now. So in, in CF, I actually don't know what the threshold would be to help to, to have a, an impact, but you'd want as many of those cells as possible to get the correction of the mutation causing the disease. In, in other cases, like uh, sorry sickle cell disease, that's one that a lot of people are working on, including us at the IGI. And in that case, it's thought that if even just three or 5% of someone's blood stem cells were corrected that would be enough to potentially alleviate symptoms of sickle cell disease. So the threshold is really, really variable for different diseases. Like how, how effective it has to be is, is very, can be very different.
0: So would you have two types of DNA in the body or how would it be? So, so all, the, the,
1: yeah. all the cells have DNA. It's sort of just, you know, you have this collection of cells all over the place. They each have their own little, you know, copy of the genome of their DNA. And you wanna get the CRISPR machinery into each one of those to make the edit in each one of those cells. And so it's a question like, why is there such a difference between how many cells you have to treat?
0: Okay, but would that, would it change? Like, are, the, are you able to make those cells actually the dominant and that they would eventually reproduce to the whole body or it's fine so, to have, you know what, the ones in the lungs have the DNA that is corrected. The other ones have the DNA, uh, the original DNA
1: right so it it kind of depends on how quickly the cells are turning over so like in Mm -hmm. blood all of your blood gets used up over time and replaced constantly so all the red blood cells kind of like die and degrade and get replaced with new ones and those come from stem cells so stem cells are like the cells that keep reproducing and Mm -hmm. repopulating cells that turn over quickly so in that case if you edit those stem cells that live in the bone marrow in the middle of bones um they're going to stay there and all the new daughter cells that they give rise to are going to go off and become blood cells and they'll have the right changes so the stem cell if you can edit that it's going to reproduce and make all these healthy cells uh, indefinitely in theory whereas something there are other cells that are non-dividing that are kind of just sitting where they are or you know turning over very slowly like maybe some new ones are getting made from stem cells but not very quickly. And so in those cases, you really want to try to edit the cell where it is and not rely on repopulation of a a tissue or a population of cells.
0: Thank you. That was like a question I was longing for
1: an answer for a long time. (laughs) Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, because it it really depends on the circumstance you're talking about. And a lot of therapies, you just take cells out of somebody and edit them in a dish and then put them back into the patient, like for sickle cell. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in that case, you have a pool of cells and you're trying to edit as many of those as you can. But it's all different.
0: In terms of human treatments, where are you seeing the best, uh, the most promising results right now?
1: So, we're kind of at a a stage where a lot of different clinical trials using CRISPR are starting to get to a point where the, the companies or whoever's running them are releasing the results. And it's all kind of happening at once in the past couple of years. So, all of the initial trials that started a few years ago are starting to have results, which makes sense. And it's been really promising across the board, I would say. There are a handful of different diseases being treated. And I mean, some of the results are kind of astonishing, like shock, working shockingly well, to to be honest. So the, the initial results that I think kind of blew everyone's mind came from sickle cell disease, which I was just mentioning, and beta thalassemia, which is another blood disorder. And so in these patients, you know, the sort of famous patient now in that trial is named Victoria Gray. And she's famous because she was one of the first people to be edited using CRISPR to have her cells edited. And she was willing to talk about her story and release her name and everything. And so NPR has been following her and it's been really interesting to see what this trial has been like for her. And she she sort of went into this having kind of, it seems like almost at a breaking point with her sickle cell disease, where it was becoming so severe. She was having so many pain crises. That's kind of one of the key symptoms of the disease and she was sort of not able to participate in her her life in the way she would like to and so she did undergo this treatment which is you know inherently risky because it's new it's experimental and it seems now that she's you know i don't say cured because there's always damage built up from diseases and you know you never know what's going to happen in the long term but her her symptoms are basically gone so she doesn't have pain crises anymore. She doesn't need blood transfusions. So I think it's it's basically totally changed her life. And so that was kind of the, I would say, the big story that came out that kind of shocked everybody and in, in a good way. And so that that's been amazing to see. And there's also other conditions that are being treated. There's a, a liver disease called it's a form of amyloidosis that we recently saw data for. And it seems like the, you know, at least this one or I don't remember exactly how many patients were included in that trial, but there's a story about one guy in particular and, you know, his symptoms are gone essentially from from getting this CRISPR treatment. So there's a a few different things. There's also cancers and there's more data coming out every day, but it's pretty encouraging.
0: Now there's, there was also the case of, uh, because when we go back to what we're talking about in terms of uh, ethics, there, there have been some issues. It's actually a very, very tricky situation. And I think we can talk about plants, uh, crops, like everything I think where most people, we've been doing genetic editing for for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years on plants to get more resistant crops. Now, I remember like um, the Dolly sheep, like when, when it was cloned at the time, Recently, we had—I um, think it was in China—a doctor that had um, that basically ended up ended up in big trouble because it was changing, if I believe, the, um, the HIV genes so that the, the child would not wouldn't develop um, HIV or was HIV resistant. And this is where it starts becoming tricky. Because at the end, and, and I was at a conference in at LD a few years ago, and I remember saying, we have to be very careful because we might actually get to the point of eugenics, uh, which how we get the perfect race, which was a little bit the goal on Second World War. And we go there by the dramatic cases. So nobody is opposed to cure cancer. Nobody's opposed to cure HIV. But then it's just like okay, just an extra tweak, and now it's the color of the eyes. Now we want stronger people. Now we want smarter people. And at the end, we end up we might end up creating different races. Let's put it like this: that would be maybe the rich that can afford it, and the poor that can't afford it. So I'm just putting the argument. I'm I, I think ethical issues are always like there's pros and cons on each side. I'm definitely not, uh, I'm I'm very enthusiastic about CRISPR, but I'm also a little worried about what's coming out of all these changes. What's your take on it?
1: It's a big topic. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think everything you're bringing up is is spot on. So these are the kinds of discussions that we are having all the time. And these are the kinds of discussions that I think people more broadly need to be having. Um, you mentioned that even though CRISPR has been around for a little while now, and it's very important, it's not something that most people just chat about or even aware of. So I think a lot of the focus has been on trying to get people up to speed in some way so that we can have broader societal conversations. And I think that the main thing that we we always talk about is deciding where to draw lines. So I'm not going to say draw the line, because I think there are a lot of lines that need to be to be drawn or at least penciled in before we can, you know, discuss them with people. And I I think there's a lot of questions. I mean, you you brought up so many things. So I think getting back to kind of an earlier question, there are technical risks associated with CRISPR. And these are distinct, I would say, from philosophical, moral, social risks. We're getting to a point where I think we nearly unanimously in the scientific community sort of agree that for whatever reason, when editing embryos specifically, human embryos, and that's what would have to be done to sort of enable the kinds of changes I think you're talking about. It's just, it doesn't work that well. So gene editing does not work very well in embryos. It's not reliable. There's all sorts of weird DNA rearrangements and kind of unexpected things going on. And it, it's just not, it's not as straightforward and predictable as you would want it to be if you, if you were trying to bring that kind of technology to the world um, to do routinely with real human people that you intend to you know, impl- implant embryos and have them be born into the world. So mm-hmm. there are technical risks that are significant in that case. And I think on the science side, we all kind of say like, this is not ready. Assuming, not even assuming, but if there were a chance that people would want that to be something brought to the world, that they would want parents to be able to choose traits potentially of their children or edit diseases out of unborn children, even if that were something we wanted right now, it's not really doable. It's not safe to do that. So I think that you you have to kind of put that argument aside though, because assume we have to assume that one day it would be safe or technically could become safe to do, or at least mostly safe. Um, And then it's, it's sort of a matter of what do we want our world to look like? How do we anticipate things like economic divides, like you were mentioning? Do we think that this is a technology that will ever become affordable or accessible to people broadly? And if not, is that something we want to even release at all? Or do you just want to stop it before it becomes, you know, uh, something that's not accessible to the most people?
0: How do you stop it? Because you end up, different countries have different regulations. And then like, and if this is actually... Even you can consider like a way of uh, moving your country further ahead, like it would be different countries with different regulations, like, I don't know, if the US is more strict than other countries, uh, for instance, or the European Union, it would happen that these countries become less competitive. So there's like, there's, it's a double sword. It's a double-edged sword.
1: Yeah, I think the concept of attempting to regulate or control something that, is powerful is really hard when you're talking internationally. I think even, even in the U.S. I have concerns about how that might be controlled, but I think that is a big question. So in the U S right now, it's not legal to, to edit the human germline that I haven't defined that, but yep. editing the germline is the main topic that we're talking about here. So the germ cells are like sperm, eggs, embryos, things that get passed down from generation to generation. So the, the, the flip side of what what we're talking about is that any changes we do make to the germline are going to be passed down. When we're treating someone for sickle cell disease, that's going to live and die with them. It's not going to be passed to their children. So all of what we're talking about in these implications kind of get magnified when you think they're actually going to be lasting yeah. for generations and generations. And so the, the prospect of editing, uh, sorry, regulating something like that is really difficult. And in the US, it's not legal to edit the germline. The FDA will not even look at clinical trials associated with changing, you know, editing embryos, the NIH won't give funding to it, so it it's not really conceivable to do. In other countries, it's it's not as clear whether or not that's legal and it, it's different across the world. So, a lot of more recent efforts that have come about since that incident in China where, you know, CRISPR edited babies were born and it was done very unethically, which we can get into if you like, but it was uh, a really a terrible process that that led up to that. Uh, after that happened, I would say globally there have been these conversations about how to assemble sort of international bodies to oversee this kind of technology. So the WHO, the World Health Organization, has a a committee about this now. They're trying to think about a global governance structure and suggestions for how different countries can attempt to draw lines and regulate and, and approach these topics. I think there's other efforts as well that I I don't know off the top of my head, but there's a variety of people, you know, kind of striving for more international collaboration. And Thank you. That's, that's, we, that's what it'll take.
2: If we took that a, a case in China as the example, I, I could be interested in hearing how does that impact you as a research institution and the research community in general? You're saying it's done in an unethical way and, and also how you as a, a leading institute in this field, sort of what your thoughts internally are into how maybe you self-regulate a bit in terms of what you're willing to test CRISPR on and, and which kind of trials you're working on and which you discard because of the impact it could have.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I would say that when that happened in China, it kind of sent everybody into a, a, not a tailspin, but it was a huge deal. So everyone was talking about it. It was a big deal. I think it it sort of showed a lot of us that this self-regulation or self-governance among scientists is not probably going to be sufficient to to prevent things like that from happening. Because we all thought, oh yeah, everybody agreed. It's not ready to do yet. There was this (laughs) report that came out from the National Academies of Science that said don't do this, that you know there are all these technical risks that we talked about. And the guy that actually did it read that report and used that as the basis for, for doing it in some ways. So he completely, I would say misinterpreted it, but he interpreted it very differently and just went for it. And so I think that shows us, you know this is people are not going to stop what they're going to do in some cases. People have a lot of different motives for pursuing this. There's, you know, monetary motives. There's people I, in that case, I think he wanted fame as he wanted respect as a scientist, though, who knows? And so I think you, you have to have some kind of additional structures to, to balance this, or at the very least, which is part of this WHO concept, you could have a whistleblower line. So that was another thing that came out about that story So that a lot of people either knew about it in a lot of detail, or they knew something about it. But they either didn't tell anyone or they you know didn't really know what to do with that information. So if there were some kind of whistleblower line where you could report that you've heard a rumor about some you know potentially unethical usage or someone even told you they were going to do that, you could report it to somebody who hopefully has some kind of teeth and, and <laughs> something that they can do about it. But I would I would just add to all of this that my real I have two main concerns about CRISPR's use in humans personally, and this you know, does not represent my institute or probably anybody else, but my thoughts <laughs> on this are, one, people could, even if it is illegal, set up kind of shady clinics and say that they're going to do some kind of CRISPR treatment, say that they're going to do uh, an edit in an embryo while they're doing IVF, And I think people could lie about this and who knows what they're actually doing, or they could try to use CRISPR and do it poorly and hurt people. And so I'm really worried about that happening just because there is precedent with stem cell clinics. There's a really good podcast, because since we're doing a podcast, a really good podcast called Bad Batch, that goes into one example of a a stem cell clinic that's taking all these, you know, in, in in theory, scientific concepts of potentially using stem cells to, at, for therapies, but then, you know, basically botching everything and making claims about what stem cells can do that they really can't. And eventually they actually, they use some contaminated stem cells and end up infecting people and almost killing a whole bunch of people, yeah. which is horrible. I'm in,
0: I'm in Mexico and then in, in Latin America, definitely there are a few of those laboratories. In yeah. Different experimental, not in Mexico, actually in Mexico, I haven't heard about them uh, for other things. Yes. But uh, I think for instance, Costa Rica and everything have like laboratories. I don't know how good they are or not, but I, I've definitely heard about stem cell treatments being right. done off the grid.
1: And they're pretty much, none of them are real. You know, there's stem cells are, are I would say still promising, but they are not at the point where they should be in Know, in my opinion, in, in clinics very broadly. So the, the thing that worries me about that is that those are illegal or they're mostly operating illegally, but the FDA in the US, which should regulate them, can't keep up with them. So it's kind of like a whack-a-mole situation where they don't have the the bandwidth or the money to do this enforcement that really needs to be done. And so you could stop one and it just pops up under a different name. So that that's my concern that CRISPR could follow a, a similar path. And then my other real concern is so, that... Just uh, regarding oh, the mm-hmm. first
0: one, because it's not yeah. that expensive to set up a, a CRISPR lab, right? Like the technology mm-hmm. compared to previous technologies, it was it's much cheaper, right?
1: Yeah, I would say it, if you were to do this properly and treat human beings properly, it would yeah. be expensive just because you have to do things at a, you know, at a medical grade, and yeah. you have to do things really, really well. And so in that context, it would be expensive. But if you're just doing this casually in a lab that's already set up to do molecular biology in general, or you're willing to do it very cavalierly and unsafely in some kind of mm-hmm. clinic context, then it could be inexpensive. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is, you know, with the stem cell example, especially in that podcast, like, I don't know that there were even stem cells in this treatment that they gave people that ended up hurting people. I think it's it's very easy when this is totally unregulated to just say you're doing something and there's nothing in the tube you're injecting, or there's some, you know, unknown random thing in there. So it could definitely be very inexpensive if you're lying about what it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and sorry for your second point that you were mentioning, I interrupted you.
1: Yeah, sure. So the second thing that I'm, mostly concerned about is access to legitimate therapies. So on the the one hand, I do think we could have illegitimate therapies being offered by people, but I think there will be a lot of potentially impactful and life-changing treatments based on CRISPR that come out in the next you know, five to 10 years or and even after that. And those right now are sort of on track to be extremely expensive and prohibitively expensive. So it's to me, it's you know, it's not really a, a cure or even a, a real treatment option if it's not an option for 90% of people. And I think we can learn from a sort of prior technology that we mostly call gene therapies, which involves using a virus to give people an extra copy of a gene that might be broken or that might be useful in some way. Those therapies are a little bit older than CRISPR, and so they're starting to be FDA approved now and in the past couple of years, and they're all you know, half a million dollars, $2 million of treatment, like very, very, very expensive. And so it's there's really heartbreaking stories about people's insurance not covering the cost and people not being able to afford these treatments that could totally, totally change their lives. And I think there's no reason right now to think that CRISPR is going to be any different. It builds on a lot of the same underlying technologies. And it is really expensive to do some of the, the steps involved in gene editing real humans when you're doing it properly. So I'm concerned that we're, you know, too slow to think about how this is going to roll out and how people are going to be able to access it. So that's something we talk about all the time, actually, at the IGI. That's a, a big effort of ours is to try to pull people together to think like, what can we do differently with this technology, either on the science side, that will bring down the cost or on the social side, you know, can we make deals with insurance companies ahead of time, or can we get government to pay for some of these treatments? You know, there's, there's different models that we could potentially pursue to make sure that people really benefit equitably from our work.
0: Because it's uh, it's bad business for pharmaceutical companies because instead of selling a pill for the rest of your life, or that can be expensive, it's a one shot treatment. So it ends up like the economics will affect a lot of lobby groups.
1: Right, right. Yeah, that's exactly the issue. And it, it tends to be very, very, very expensive to do the research that becomes uh, an actual therapy. So companies are faced with this dilemma where you know they're not going to recoup their research costs by just giving a single treatment to each patient with, this, with whatever condition it is that they're treating. Um, and so they have to jack up price, or like they don't have to, but they're jacking up prices, in many cases to try to cover that. So it's difficult. And there's also a very small population pools in some cases. So most genetic diseases are rare diseases, and they don't uh, affect most people. So you you could, you know, potentially cure everybody that has a lot of genetic disease, particular genetic diseases in the world, because there's, you know, 30 people that might have that disease. Yeah. So that's you know who's going to make spend millions of dollars to make a treatment for 30 people most companies yeah. are are not
0: yeah i've 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 um i have friends that have kids with some of those genetic diseases and it's they're desperate because it's like mm-hmm. there's no real research it's too expensive nobody really cares about not care like invests or actually helps out in in those situations because it might be a thousand people. So it doesn't, there's no return on investment on it. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think, I mean, on the, on the more hopeful side, I think technologies like CRISPR are very promising and should offer hope to rare disease patients and families because you don't have to go through as much of a rigorous development process as you might with a different kind of therapy that was made just for that disease. Because with CRISPR, it's just this one protein and you can add, you can tell it to go to all different places. So you can reprogram it so easily that you could, in theory, make a therapy for one disease, then say, OK, I'm going to order a different guide RNA and get it two weeks later. I have the therapy now for a different disease you can kind of switch and reprogram and go one by one through many, many different diseases in theory. It's just a matter of who's going to do that, who's incentivized to do it. So there are a lot of discussions right now among government agencies in the US, as well as academic institutes and universities about how to treat you know, very small population sizes. And can we come up with some kind of something from the government, you know, like a center that all they do is try to diagnose these rare diseases and then come up with this very, very customized treatment that they give in these very, very small clinical trials. And how can we set that up in a way that's safe to do?
0: Are there any FDA approved treatments already with CRISPR or?
1: Not yet. So the FDA approves clinical trials. So they, yeah. they you know, say it's okay to go ahead and do this testing, but none of those trials are far enough along to be at the point where they you know, apply for full FDA approval to release and market uh, a treatment.
0: Which timeline do you think we're looking at?
1: It's really hard to estimate these things. I would say that there could be an FDA approved CRISPR treatment at the earliest within, you know, the next three to five years, something like that. It depends, It's you know, I don't know how far along every single trial is and what companies are pursuing, but on that timeline, like next couple of years, I could see something getting to that point, potentially. I think for, you know, widespread treatments becoming available, like many, many FDA approved products, that will be like 10, 20 years. You know, that, that'll that be a little bit longer. But I'm always surprised. I mean, I'm I'm constantly being surprised every time I see new clinical trial data that things are moving so fast. So maybe it'll go even quicker.
2: Secret. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, now we touched on on the technical risk first, which I assume is the one science will alleviate over time, hopefully, <laughs> depending on your results. And we're also getting into the more societal thing. I think it, it's, it's interesting how with illnesses, it, it's these small pools, but, but CRISPR can help because it's in, in various stages. I think what we talked about is a concern I got was like, but then how, especially if you start having these illegal offspring operations, which seems more feasible because, as you mentioned, the technology is user-friendly, at least compared to, to other methods. How do you actually secure that you have the right thing, you get the right thing when you buy a CRISPR treatment? I assume mm-hmm. that's only an, an FDA thing, but that made me curious. How are you sure that you're buying something that's editing your genome in the right place?
1: Right. I mean, I would say you know, if if anybody, especially anybody listening to this is trying to access treatments, whether they're, you know, newer technologies or older technologies, look, talking to your own doctor about it is really essential. Like I would not enroll in a clinical trial or buy something on the internet or do anything like that unless you've talked to your doctor. I mean, if it's aspirin or something, fine, but for something (laughs) more elaborate, you're going to want to talk to somebody. And if the in the US, I don't know exactly how it works everywhere in the world, but in the US, you really want to be using FDA approved products. Yeah. So that's that's the gold standard. That's how you know, like, this is real. This is not something someone is lying about. This has been tested and it's safe and hopefully very effective. Now, going a
0: little bit into the industry, because we've had Nobel Prizes. We have a lot of patent discussions as well and arguments of, on who owns what. I believe there were discoveries kind of um, more or less about the same time and who got there first and all these things. Can you tell us a little bit how you're seeing right now the industry? Because there's a lot of the stocks have been going up and down and ARC invested uh, as well. Uh, a while ago and yesterday, uh, two days ago, actually just bought more stocks on several companies. How are you seeing? Uh, how are you seeing this industry? Who are the key players? Who are the key players? Uh, and now, if you can map it out for us a little bit, it would be great.
1: Sure. I mean, I'll say first, I know science. I don't know anything about stocks and finance, so I'm. I, I won't be giving anybody a hot tip here, but no, I, no, I guess no. I would say. <laughs> There's no there's investment advice, but just doing. <laughs> yeah, Certainly not. You, you don't want that from me. I, I would say that, that there's three main companies sort of in the CRISPR world trying to do therapeutics. There's Editas, Intelia, and CRISPR Therapeutics, which is you know, the most literally named of the companies. And so those, I would say, are the ones that I think of as kind of the main gene editing companies that are running clinical trials and dosing patients and trying to advance these therapies. There's lots of other companies that are, you know, not running clinical trials, but offering CRISPR related products, especially, you know, on the agricultural side, there are people trying to do that as well, which we haven't really touched on. And those three companies are the ones that I'm kind of like, you know, looking at their clinical trial data and waiting to see what happens with them and what they're up to. And they partner with all kinds of other pharmaceutical and biotech companies as well. So it's there's a lot of different players in the space. I have, you know, I don't know why their stocks go up and down day to day. Exactly. You know, But (laughs) I think I I would say on the scientific side, nothing has really been all that shocking so far. I mean, aside from being shocked with, you know, happiness about some of the results, it, it all seems to be sort of going the course that I would expect if things are going to go well. So we keep getting new data and, you know, sometimes it's, great, sometimes it's a little bit disappointing, but then you can think like, oh well, they didn't really use a high enough dose of this, or there's this reason why I think that probably didn't work so well. So there there haven't really been any, you know, big issues where I'm like, oh no, this is a, you know, there's been a what they call a serious adverse event where someone was really harmed from something or, you know, some unexpected outcome. So it's kind of, I would say just trending positive in general. And you know, all the companies are doing different things, but they're also all competing. I, I don't know that there's one like standout.
0: And and regarding what uh, what you're doing at the IGI, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, so we're yeah, actually,
0: if you can tell us a little bit about it,
1: yeah, so the IGI, I guess I'll introduce the IGI in general. Basically, we're a, a partnership between UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco. So we're you know. Part of public universities. We're a nonprofit institute. And we were founded by Jennifer Doudna several years ago now to try to make sure that genome editing and related technologies have the impact that she wants them to have on the world. So instead of being confined to a lab or not really developed and maybe developed but not distributed well, we, we want to make sure that we're really bringing te- these therapies to people. Going after really big problems, solving them, and having lots and lots of people access them. So, the IGI is a, you know, we do research, we do a lot of technology development, but then we also do applications of gene editing. So, what's farthest along is our sickle cell trial. And I would say we're, we, we just talked about companies and industry, but we're the only academic group pursuing a sickle cell therapy at the moment. And we're one of two groups that are trying to actually do a direct correction of the sickle mutation. So in many of these cases, and various treatments, people are testing in clinical trials, they're not actually fixing the underlying mutation. That's not happening in, I would say, almost any of them that I'm aware of. They're actually going after other kind of oblique strategies. So in the case of sickle cell, you can instead of fixing the mutation, you can turn on something called fetal hemoglobin, just something you make, you know, during development, as might be implied by the name fetal, but then gets turned off as an adult. But we get, we have ways of turning it back on, and that can suffice and uh, sort of overcome the issues that people have with hemoglobin and sickle cell disease. So we're one of the only groups that's actually going to see can we directly correct that mutation because. That's sort of the big promise of CRISPR is just going in there and fixing whatever the underlying problem is. So, we're one of the only academic groups, the only academic group doing that. And on the agricultural side, we're just starting to get into climate change and thinking about how we can combat climate change with CRISPR. So, this is a newer effort for us, but we're trying to figure out can we engineer crops? Can we engineer soil microbes? Can we engineer trees, grasses? You know, we're still sort of in the I would say goal-setting stage of this um, and strategizing stage to see can we pull in more carbon into these biological organisms and suck it into the ground and push it deep into soil. Can we make longer roots that push the carbon deeper and deeper into the soil and trap it there? Can we alter, you know, can we edit? It? We we have an investigator at the IGI that engineered E. coli, which is a really common lab bacterium, uh, to basically eat carbon dioxide. So instead of eating sugar like it normally would to grow and reproduce, it can eat CO2. So we're, we're trying to figure out kind of innovative solutions potentially to, to climate change that take advantage of these genome editing tools that we've been developing.
0: That's amazing. How do you predict the full impacts? Because I don't know, by changing, for instance, E. coli from sugar to carbon, like, how do you how do you predict like because it's a little bit like um uh, pulling the blanket no you take it from from one side to the other and
1: uh yeah totally i mean it's i think there it's hard to predict these impacts but it's really important to do those sorts of assessments and figure out how would you actually roll out something like that like what if we did engineering cola that did that and we wanted to release them into the environment, which, I, you know, it's not currently the plan, but how would that go? You just dump that into a lake. Is that legal? How do you, how is that regulated? So we're, we're starting to kind of scope out some things like that and trying to convene different regulators and get a handle on how you would even approach thinking about that impact. And how could you do something like that responsibly? Since I think there are potential, you know, the, the idea is to have an environmental impact. so. You you have to think, though, what impact is that actually going to be? How do you make sure that something doesn't go awry if you're releasing it into the wild?
2: Perfect. Sigurd? Yeah, I think that, that's interesting. It sounds like you also sort of have a mission to try and make sure that legislation catches up to where you can actually start using these things without you or yourself having to take all of these things into consideration. Or is yeah. that just by reading? <laughs>
1: Definitely. No, no. We, I mean, I think a big part of the IGI is the, the responsibility side of things. So I think I don't know that there are other institutes or research groups that think about the ethical side of things, the regulatory side of things, the translational pathway from bringing something to the lab, from the lab to the real world as much as we do. I think that's, that's kind of the, the key distinction about IGIs that we're trying to think of things like start to finish before we start them. At least that's the goal. I wouldn't say we always do that, but that's the kind of, I would say the ethos that we're trying to instill in our researchers is to to think really holistically about things.
0: Megan, um, we want to be respectful of your time, just, just like a, a couple of extra questions. If we were recording this podcast three years from now, what do you think would change? What are your predictions that's going to happen? I know it's hard and it's moving so fast, but what would you think we would be talking about?
1: sure i would I would hope that maybe we'd be celebrating Fda approval of the first CRISPR therapy for something, maybe cancer, sickle cell disease those seem to be pretty kind of far along. I would hope that there are a handful of gene edited crops that people are using that I don't know. I don't know what they, they, they will do. There's so many things, (laughs) um, but maybe they're, you know, more nutritious or, you know, we have a project trying to make a safer version of this crop called cassava. I think it would be super cool if I could be telling you about our successful field trial and how well it went, you know, I I don't know. I hope. What what are you most excited about? I'm most excited about the therapies. You know, I think there's so many so many conditions where CRISPR can offer hope. I really hope that in the next couple of years, you know, things keep going well. There's good safety profiles. It's working well. And we open up a lot of different avenues to treating diseases. Okay.
0: Megan, thank you so, so much. It was really enlightening and really instructive to to learn about it. Congratulations on the, the amazing job I believe you are doing for all of humanity. There's definitely like a lot of challenges and risks, but uh, it's very exciting everything that is happening.
1: Great! Thanks so much for having me. It's good talking to you.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sigurd, for being our student interviewer this podcast, and we'll see you next week on another episode of Lead Sex. Next week we'll be back with another episode of Lead Sex. This time discussing the future of retail. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You may reach out to us for commenting, giving suggestions, or just say hi by email, x at leedsadventures.com, Twitter and Instagram, at and LinkedIn, leadsadventures. Adventures. Litz is L-I-T-S and stands for Life is Too Short. Leeds X podcast is a result of the teamwork between Beatriz Chosa Janosch Geyer, Lydian Marie Friedrich, Sigurd Kolts, and David Bernardo-Santo. Please remember that more than providing answers, LitSag's podcast aims to raise awareness and questions about topics that are becoming relevant and discussed in society. The podcast reflects the personal views of each of its participants and not any institutions. It's not in any way meant to give investment, health, medical, or any other type of advice. Many of the topics addressed are still not fully tested, confirmed or approved, so please question everything you hear and exercise extreme caution.